I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Grandson, great young artist who is not just keeping the flame, uh, the eternal torch of rock and roll alive, but also advancing it and inflicting it on uh, newer generations. Uh, he and I have had the honor of working together in the past, but he is one of my collaborators and co-conspirators on the Atlas Underground Fire record, where the song Hold the Line is one of the hot jams on that record, one of my favorite songs on the record. Welcome to the program. Jordan, how are you today? Thank you for having me. Tom, it is an absolute pleasure. I'm a big fan of the show, big fan of your work. Happy to be hanging with you. Well, here we are. So we we began our uh, friendship and acquaintance. Grandson has, if you have not heard the song Blood Water, please check it out. It is a, anyone who listens to the show, I d tweet me if you don't like it. And I'll get zero tweets, I, I imagine. Like, it is absolutely in the wheelhouse of historically great rock and roll that's like speaking truth to power while kicking your ass. I did a remix of that song, which was how I was introduced to Grandson, and I've been a fan, we've been friends ever since. Uh, so one of the unique things about the song Hold the Line from the Atlas Underground Fire record, it was the only song that was recorded in its entirety prior to lockdown, and therefore the only song on the record that all of the guitars were recorded like in a traditional way in the studio rather than onto my cell phone. So uh, let's talk about the beginnings and the middles and the ends of Hold the Line. It began with when, when I first signed with a record label, it, as insidious as that is and, and all the n connotations that now are it's just <laughs> like, oh no, a record label. I mean, yeah. one of the things that that afforded me was I all of a sudden had a whole bunch of people that knew a whole bunch of people that were invested in helping me. And so around uh, May, June of 2018, a month after I had signed um, and Bloodwater was starting to um, resonate with people online and they were taking it to radio and and somebody floated the idea of, of they knew somebody who knew Tom Morello and maybe we hit him up. And I, I was like, all right, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Got a remix back and uh, yeah, that that song has lived in, in various forms. I think what people love about your version of that song is it is much more um, in-your-face, guitar-driven. The song itself is kind of a subversive take on electronic music infused with rock and roll. And I think that there have been versions of that since, but it was a quite a unique song in that I think that it was very forward-thinking infusing rock and roll and hip-hop and electronic music in a new way but the the lyrical content was still political rebellious angry and i think that sometimes when rock loses its way it is in losing the the spirit uh conceptually sometimes people get too lost in in producing the song and the guitar riff and they lose well what are we actually here standing for or standing against. So I think having a version with you playing guitar on it really helped bring that song to life. And so when I had an opportunity to work with you again, I knew I wanted to do that again. I certainly didn't want to come into a, a very unique opportunity of 
getting to hang with Tom Morello in his studio with Kevin Hissink, my collaborator, and not, you know, having a badass middle finger kind of anthem. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I got hold the line was just a classic trench warfare phrase, you know, back a hundred years ago. It was a phrase about, you know, the, the trench, if you secede, if you retreat, then that trench belongs to the enemy. So hold the line and, and don't give up. And then that, that concept of standing firm, I think it was appropriated and adapted over the years and, and became something of, of a striker's anthem, something of yeah. anyone who is standing for something, not seceding and not not compromising even when it is uh convenient to do so so i loved hold the line as an idiom as like a uh, there's a couple songs that say this but maybe not in the way that i want to say it yeah. and i just think that paul morello as an idea stands for it so does grandson so mm -hmm. wrote wrote this poem and came to you with the verses and the lyrics done and, and, and no plan, no, no melody, no key that it's in. And I learned that from Anthony Kiedis and from, from his book, Scar Tissue, that some of my favorite Red Hot Chili Pepper songs were, were initially poems that uh, were initially yeah. just, you know, a bunch of lyrics. And then after the fact, John Frusciante or whoever would, would come up with something and they would adapt the melody to fit. So came in with a poem and not a plan. And Kevin, who I work with, is a big fan of baritone guitars, mm -hmm. a big fan of and shouts out reverend guitars particularly. He loves uh, guitars tuned to, to be the low mm -hmm. string. So I, this song became a baritone jam. And, yep. and to anybody listening, uh, you know, I don't know how he, how you did it with the iPhone and the this and the that, but <laughs> my experience of working with, with you, Tom, was uh, your engineer hits record and you just let it fly. And it was That's like right. thir 30 minutes of a private concert. Where I, <laughs> we, we just got to sit there while you in real time, figured out a couple things and what what feels right. And your vocabulary on a guitar is such that one thing suggests another thing quite right. fluidly. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like you're playing over here and all of a sudden you're over here. And so we did 40 minutes of you just jamming and then sat there and we just pieced together comp the different uh, components. Okay, this thing could be the, the, the main riff. Uh, right. And then it would be cool to to modulate it up like in a, mm -hmm. in a classic blues, blues fashion. Yep, 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 yeah. Yep. And yeah, so yeah. from there, the song just kind of came about and, uh, then yeah, you mean, and Kevin kind of went back and forth. Kevin contributed some, some early production. We recorded the vocals that day and then there was a pandemic. It was just <laughs> like that. I just remember feeling like, well, this, this is just a great thing in our cachet, just a great That's song right. and it'll come out soon. And then there was like a global event that just really shut everything down for about a year or so. And then, uh, yeah, from the rubble of of my plans for 2020, yeah. came like a message from you and a message from Zach Servini, the great producer and, and engineer who also contributed to the song. And uh, and yeah, the song came back to life. And it is cool to, to know that it was the, the first and only song that, yeah. that was born, you know, that, that predicated the, the pandemic and stuff. And it's also pretty cool that you don't really know. It's not that obvious. It's not like the other ones are so exactly, grainy yeah. and 8-bit. Right. And then this <laughs> one's in high definition. They all kind of sound great. And this one yeah. just happens to uh, to be about something that, that didn't have the pandemic in focus. But, but then quite serendipitously, the song came out 
at a time when there were a great deal of American workers striking and when hold the line was uh, a hashtag trending on Twitter. And it was quite an interesting thing that although the song is years and years old, that it found a home and needed to come out when it did. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm so glad that the song got done before the starting gun of the pandemic because much of the music, uh, there, there, there's kind of like three categories of songs on the Atlas Underground Fire record. One is this and the Achilles list. Again, the, the Damien Marley song, which he had done the lyrics to, the music sort of came a bit later, but he had done the lyrics to prior to the pandemic. Those are the sort of the more traditional Morellian political songs that it's important that there's that lane on the, on the record. Mm -hmm. then, there, then there are um, the songs that are haunted by the pandemic. You know, there's the Chris Stapleton song, the Bring Me the Horizon song. Then there, there, then there are the instrumentals where I'm just sort of asserting I am alive and a guitar player during a time where right. I wasn't sure about either of those things. <laughs> but this one, it's it was very, very important for me to have this song be a part of the record because it felt like, in a way, like you said, it, it came back around. Like this was a song that was made when it was like at the forefront of our minds was we need to make a jam that is rocking futuristically and yet has the sort of the time-honored thesis of fight the power and sticking it to the man. And then when the song comes out, there's they were calling it they were calling it striketober, where there were dozens and dozens of strikes across the country. And we did our best to sort of lend that song and have that song be a co-conspirator in those struggles and something to put wind in the sails of people who are doing that. So anyway, thank you for your excellent work quick, quick on that question. Jam. I am curious yeah. because I don't know that many people who have such a spectrum where you're working with artists like me and Femme who are really yeah. coming up. And then you have yeah. the Damien Marley's, the Chris sure. Stapleton's. Do you find there's any difference? Like when you're working with somebody, when you go in and you're about to work with a Grammy award winning or a, you know, an iconic collaborator yeah. versus working with an up and coming kid. Do, do you prep differently? Is there anything different about that process of two different artists at two different stages of their career? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. The answer is no. And you're like, that my ethos of collaboration was born, it started with like a residency at the Hotel Cafe. Well, actually it started with, I went on tour in 2003 with Billy Bragg and Steve Earle. And they it was just kind of like Nanny vibe where we, you know, different artists in different cities would play together. And I got to kind of like watch how that was. So I established my own Hootenanny like residency at the Hotel Cafe here where I would just kind of go through my iconic venue, iconic, but, yeah. iconic venue. But I would like it. We, we would do a show every Tuesday night for a month, $10 at the door, the people's price, give all the money away to some homeless charity. But it was just like on my Blackberry at the time, just see who was around. And it might hmm. be a street musician who I saw busking for change here. And it might be motley crew and we would right. all you know we would all meet 45 minutes before doors sit in a room figure out what we we're going to play you know in a complete democracy and then everybody would play sort of the same link set and that was like the genesis of a myriad of collaborations since then you know whether in my life whether it's working with pete seeger and jimmy page or like some kid i've met at covenant house homeless shelter who's got a jam and we might jam together so really there's no <laughs> there's no extra deferential treatment <laughs> to right. you know to to the icons versus the up-and-comers it's all like let's make a jam together and we know it's good when we both love it and yeah. you got a couple of really good jams and if you exactly. close your eyes it's it's hard to tell it's never a meritocracy who has these external accolades or anything it's just people yeah. with real real shit to say so that's cool. exactly 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 all right so then uh, let's talk about the the idea of being a solo artist versus being a collaborative artist i've you know had the pleasure of doing both those in my life and i do them at the same time on a record like this where it is a solo record and there's kind of an overarching 
curated vision, but at the same time, I could make none of those songs on my own. That there's the individual chemistry of the collaboration. So I know that you are you do a lot of different collaborations, but self-identify as a solo artist. So tell me how that kind of works in your life and your world. Hmm. I think that the greatest thing that I think leads me to continue to make the decision to be a, a solo artist, in spite of my love for collaboration and and my need for collaboration. I'm not particularly self-sufficient. I don't produce my own music anymore. I, I rely on other people to mm -hmm. perform with me, all these things. And so everyone looks around and goes, why aren't you a band? And I think for me, the, the issue is that I know that your career, your life, there will always be things that don't go the way you want, that uh, disappoint you or let you down. I would rather do the work of making peace with my choices than having to do the work of absolving anyone else who who was a part of that decision-making process. So for yeah. me, the democracy of decision-making, there are places in my life where that's a healthy thing and an encouraged thing. But for me as an artist, I really do need my hands on the steering wheel. I'm Tom Morello. My guest today is Grandson. Let's talk about like the Canadian, you are a Canadian person. How has that both from the ex-US perspective sort of affected both your worldview and your rock and roll? Wow. Uh, I, I love this kind of conversation. I, I'm, I definitely am Canada all the way through. It, I identify with what it means to be Canadian. I think we take great pride in the Canadian identity is one that is welcoming. It is polite. It is all of these stereotypical things. Of course, a lot of that is is kind of dressing. There is an underbelly of colonialism and genocide that is an unfortunate and disgusting history that is recently back in the spotlight in Canada. So it is a complicated relationship. But, but ultimately, you look at how um, conservatives and liberals came together during the pandemic. It was so much less politicized, whether it was mask wearing. I think everyone appreciated um, a singular direction in leadership. Those sorts of things to me are, are, are what being Canadian is all about. And I think that while there is a, a spectrum, it is not a two-party system. The election process is much less of a Super Bowl pageantry than it is down here. And so people can can focus on getting along and being Canadian as opposed to being a Democrat or being a Republican. While those things do still exist up there, it is just a little more diluted. It is like a little less strong a drug, the, the, the individualism. It, it, it still exists. Somebody from Alberta and somebody from British Columbia, um, they are different. They are, they are one person prioritizes nature, maybe the other person prioritizes business and economy. But still, the the individualism, the the entitlement to freedom, and the the ways in which freedom is manipulated to justify stepping on somebody else um, and imposing yourself on somebody else in the name of your freedom to do so, that kind of stuff is all very American. And that stuff, when I first came down here, I didn't understand, and I felt very turned off by. But but at the same time, that that same that opportunity that in industrious, I'm going to make something of myself, attitude. Um, in America, there, there's nothing like that when that when that works well, when that mm -hmm. is the story of an immigrant family who 
saves up their money and then their kid goes to college. And then, you know, those kinds of stories that are baked into the fabric of America. That is just an incredible, incredible thing. So um, when America's at its best, God, I'm proud to be an American and and I am a dual citizen. I have passports in both countries, but, but there are certain things, particularly in today's climate where the, the concept of the self and how, I have a right to punch you in the mouth because it's my hand. It is a very like disgusting and depraved attitude that feels like just a dead end that we are just accelerating into. But yeah, yeah, I love being Canadian. And also I think that uh, the last thing I'll say about that, uh, being finding the momentum as an up and coming artist, like it is so hard. That first step of being going from an artist with nothing going on to an artist with something going on is uh is really hard to to make and in canada they prioritize canadian artists having that opportunity so there's a lot of a lot of uh federal money that goes into grants uh to promote canadian television canadian music touring business like i know so many canadian artists who before their music was making them any money they were able to go tour across canada Across North America and meet their fans because of that, those opportunities or shoot a great music video that tells their story. And for me, Bloodwater benefited greatly from being what's called CanCon or Canadian content. Um, so it it got prioritized in what they were going to play on the radio. And yeah. so when I was an independent artist, having a song that was like in the top 25 on the radio to up there, you know, that's something that you can try and build some momentum on. So my career would not be what it is without being Canadian. And people always ask, wow, how is that possible that your government can spend their money making music videos? And the answer (laughs) is your your government can do a lot when it's not spending $750 billion a year on defense. You know, like if you're not um, blindly subscribing to the industrial military complex and, and Canada does have a military, it's just smaller it's just less it's 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 not the world police there's all kinds of opportunities for art um to flourish and for the canadian identity to be encouraged and so i i benefit greatly from that more music videos less aircraft carriers um yeah i i, I remember when i first toured in canada hearing that that they were that they reserve on canadian radio stations like there's spots for Canadian artists. Like they will, you know, the X eighty percent, whatever it is, eighty percent can be from anywhere else, but like twenty percent or something, it's Canadian. I was like, that is quite an an amazing sort of idea that we're that they're going to not just be ramrodded by whatever you know Interscope or this one or that one says. You know, you've got to play. And, yeah, and that's exactly that right. I think yeah. that there were a lot of like bargaining tables where the the man uh, didn't have all the seats. You yes, know, I think yeah. that <laughs> you look at the Canadian relationship to healthcare. You look at uh, maternity leave. You look at all these different places and it's clear when negotiating what this country was going to be not everything was for sale um, that's right and yeah. if it was like i think that the the union power I, I read something interesting somewhere where in canada the union power um effectively became the people's power and that those choices that the unions were fighting for 
applied regardless of your workman's status. Whereas in America, the concessions they made were for unions. And That's then right. they went about union busting and they That's went right. about limiting the scale and the scope of power that those unions had. So the average person was left hung out to dry. Being Canadian, you're bo- you have birthright to uh, a doctor when you're sick. My yeah. my father had his prostate removed and, you know, he was charged like the cost of, you know, getting a single room instead of a double. You know, he right, wasn't, right. <laughs> it, it, my family could have been bankrupted from that kind of thing happening over yes. here, as so many are. And I definitely identify with Canada and, and I'm a progressive. I believe that people should be the first and foremost concern of a society is taking care of people. And uh, that doesn't always happen here in America. We, we, we find ourselves relying on the uh, stories of exceptionalism to then turn into altruism. We're hoping mm-hmm. for Jeff Bezos or yes, Elon Musk yes. to b- break us off a little piece yeah. of their, you know, meteoric rise. And those the kinds of people that get really rich, they don't do so by giving away their money. You know, no, like no, they do not. Yeah. For me to hold my breath and hope that those That's people cu- are gonna, yeah. you know, pay for my, you know, root canal. It's like just insane. So yes, it's the, it's it's hard, man. It's hard. I know the, you feel it. The common good may not be served by their interests. Um, so in, in conclusion, what I would like us to discuss is the Mount Rushmore of Canadian musicians and who is on that Mount Rushmore. And I'd like you to take us, let's let's see if we get a collaborative top four uh, to go on that Mount Rushmore. Oh, who you, boy. Who you, who okay. you got? I, I got to go number one, Celine Dion right now. I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't. I, I, the front man of this band is is a Celine Dion Drake hybrid. That's yeah, yeah, who it yeah. is. It is <laughs> undeniable. Hundreds and hundreds of of great songs that, that define a generation the way that Drake yeah. has. But with Celine Dion's once in a generation voice, the soaring vocals, nobody's That's, matched it. Nobody ever yes. has. Nobody ever will. Yeah, Celine yeah. Dion all day. I'm so proud that she's Canadian. That that's me. That's the front yeah. man of our band. Yeah. What people what people don't maybe not a lot of people in the U.S. recognize just how what a powerful hold <laughs> Celine Dion has over Canada and France, where that was like one of the highlights of one of the moments where I knew that like Rage Against the Machine was something special in the world was when the evil empire, it was either, or Battle of Los Angeles, unseated Celine Dion as the number one record in France. <laughs> Hell like, yeah. Like, you know you're doing something. Hey, if, like, hey you I know speak you're for doing everyone. Something. Let Tom know in the comments. We need that Rage-Celine matchup. Match That's up. what we really need. <laughs> Let me tell we you, need Canada, to collab. Canada would lose its mind. Okay, so you've got, so our two, of, are you going Celine and Drake on the on in the top four? No, that's just. The, I, I thought we were just doing like the band, like who's no, the not best doing guitar. the band. No, 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 no. The top, top four, okay. and any sort of they can all be singers, whatever. Because I was okay. thinking after you mentioned Celine, I was thinking maybe a Celine. Just let me just spitball this: a Celine, Drake, Neil Young, <laughs> Rush. Who, cra- who cracks pretty it? bad. That sounds who- like a pretty unlistenable band, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> They're not in the same band. They're just on the same mountain. There's I love Neil Young. Um, a great, as you know, we were just talking about those <laughs> artists that could that could tell all kinds of stories. Neil Young, yes, um, yep. Ohio, one of my favorite protest sure. records. Yep. But then Old Man is, you know, a song that stick, sticks with me. And Harvest Moon, that's he's great. He's yeah. He, yeah. The age is like you get. I I find that 
Um, the older I get, the more I can appreciate Neil Young, which is interesting. Yeah. When I first, I, I don't get this warbly voice. I don't get what the yeah. hell's happening <laughs> what, here. But what's he doing? as yeah. I get older, I, it's kind of like Joni Mitchell. The two of them both are like finding new ways that I'm, I, I'm relating to what they had to say. I, I if t- I can really quickly, though, give a shout out to some new Canadian yes, talent. By all means, there's this a, is a the great band called Cleopatric out of Coburg, Ontario. Uh, just in your face rock and roll. Really, really good. Shouts out the Glorious Sons, an iconic rock band. Like they, they are taking the mantle along with the Arkells. The Glorious Sons and the Arkells are new Canadian stadium rock and roll. Shad K, an incredible uh, hip hop artist and and documentarian. That's all. I'm out of breath for now. That, that's, all, right, that's, <laughs> all right. So check those out. And again, thank you so much, grandson, for being on the program. We have a song together. It is called Hold the Line. It's on the Atlas Underground Fire record. And check out, if you're not familiar with Grandson's work, please check him out. It is great rock and roll music for the future. He's a good dude, and it's always lovely to speak with you and your thoughtful thoughts on different thoughtful topics. I appreciate, young man. It's truly my pleasure. I love hanging out with you, man. And I, I, hopefully I'll see you again real soon. Until next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower. Firepower.